From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out on assignment. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Department of Veterans Affairs will postpone its electronic health record system rollout until July. The VA says users wanted to train on the full system instead of a closed and less functional version. NextGov reports the Department of Veterans Affairs will get a revised schedule to Congress by March 10th. The Department of Veterans Affairs wants $4.9 billion for IT in fiscal year 2021. Secretary Robert Wilkie says the VA has been, quote, underfunded on the IT front through the past several decades. FedScoop reports the agency plans to use the money for cloud migration and infrastructure rebuilding. The Air Force has recommendations for space acquisition that it will need to bring to Capitol Hill. Space Force Vice Commander Lieutenant General David Thompson says the Air Force wants Congress to give, quote, the authority to create that 21st century rapid, clean, agile acquisition force. Breaking Defense reports the service will also need to explain to Congress its total force management approach for the Space Force. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says that problems with the Navy's optimized fleet response plan are delaying its force structure assessment. Esper will oversee multiple reviews of the plan and then incorporate their findings into the force structure assessment. Seth Cropsey is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and former deputy undersecretary of the Navy. Thanks for joining us. What, what do you Good think morning. are the problems um, with OFRP that created this delay? Well, the problems, uh, the problem is that uh, the uh, growth in maintenance and the uh, lack of uh, dry docks um, and repair capability has delayed the cycle of 36 months that the OFRP was intended to address. And so when you can't get ships into the dry docks because they're not available and maintenance is increasing um, and repair capacity is a problem, then you're going to have problems meeting, big problems, meeting that 36-month cycle, which consists of repair and maintenance and then deployment and then a sustainment period afterwards during which a ship is available for an additional deployment if necessary. What do you think the Navy can do to address those problems? It sounds like it's kind of a multi-part issue. Well, <laughs> there, are, uh, there are a couple of possibilities. One of them is to simply reduce the number of ships um, and cut back commitments. I don't think that's an acceptable one. Uh, so um, the alternative is uh, to address the problems that have delayed maintenance. Uh, to address the dry dock availability, um, all those issues. Uh, and the other possibility, of course, is to add to that a greater number, larger number of ships. Um, and that's what is at the bottom uh, going on here is the discussion about the size and, and, and the shape of the Navy in the future. So do you think uh, uh, resolving some of the issues with the OFRP will provide a clearer path for the force structure assessment or, or not? Well, if they can actually resolve them, uh, it will assist with the force structure assessment. Um, but I still think that 
uh, we're talking about uh, <clears throat> lesser matters here, um, and that the larger question really is what is the force structure, what drives the force structure assessment? What is it that we should be, that Navy should be considering, the government and the nation should be considering when it thinks about, when the Navy thinks about what the force structure assessment is? And my opinion is that uh, instead of, as in the past, uh, the force structure assessment, and now it's called an integrated force structure assessment because of the inclusion of the Marine Corps, um, is the driver has been mainly a list of the combatant command's requirements. Uh, and as important as that is, it lacks a strategic overlook um, and maybe that's too complicated a way of saying it. Maybe it would be easier to just say, um, what is the strategy that governs the force structure of the Navy? I think that would be uh, a good place to start. Do you think the Defense Department is, is able to um, have that discussion at this point? Obviously, as, as all this is happening, there's also this kind of overarching goal to get to 355 ships. Um, uh, does the strategy match that? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that there's been more concentration on the numbers um, and less concentration on what should determine the numbers. Uh, it seems to me as though that puts the cart in front of the donkey. <laughs> uh, and to give you an example, um, when I think the last time I think this was done sensibly and correctly and rationally really was during the Cold War when Navy decided that its uh, strategy would be of a certain kind, which is to say uh, instead of convoying, protecting convoys of ships to resupply uh, the army in a central front European war, uh, that it would uh, use naval forces uh, to attack the flanks of the Soviet Union in the event of a, of a war in Europe and thereby distract Soviet attention from the Central Front. And that argument, whatever its merits, and they certainly were debated at the time, uh, from that argument was derived uh, the idea and the justification for a 600-ship navy. And that was found compelling by the administration and by Congress. And again, there were objections, but, you know, disagreements. But still, it was an idea that people could understand that made strategic sense, that was practiced and trained for and built for. And I think that that's a sensible way to approach this question. With just about 30 seconds to go, what, what has been the reaction of Congress so far? Where are they trying to maybe put pressure on the Navy? I think uh, Congress seems to, well, at least the, the, the House, House Armed Services Committee um, seems to be uh, pretty unified across party lines that uh, there are going to be changes uh, to the Navy's, to the administration's request, and the changes are going to be this way, <laughs> not, not this way. Thank you so much for being here, Seth Cropsey.
Up next, the latest on the appropriations and authorization bills making their way through Congress. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what to expect in the legislation, and when we'll see it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Senate Appropriations Committee plans to begin marking up bills for fiscal year 2021 in June. Some of the bills, including the Defense Appropriations Bill, could be on the Senate floor this summer. Nancy Ognanovich is Senior Congressional Correspondent for Bloomberg Government. Thanks for being here, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about, about uh, appropriations on the Senate side. What's happening there? Well, they're just getting underway, having cabinet heads in to talk about their budget requests. And that committee has seven different hearings this week with the leaders of five different agencies. And so they're a little bit behind the House Appropriations Committee, which is having 25 hearings this week and already had many with cabinet heads. But little by little, they're getting you know the testimony on the budget from the different agencies so that they can start preparing to write the fiscal 21 bills this spring. And are you getting some initial feedback um, from committee chairmen on both sides about their plans for, for the timeline this year? Well, the House usually goes first, and I don't think it'll be any different this year. But when I look at their hearing schedule, I can see that they'll soon be done with some subcommittees in terms of hearings, and they'll be ready to start writing bills. So I would expect to see some of the first bills in April, and then a lot more in May. And Democratic leaders talk about the fiscal 21 appropriations bills being on the floor in the House in May and June. And what about on the Senate side? Well, they're further behind and they're, you know, these are unofficial schedules, but they're talking about a plan they circulated which calls for them to finish their hearings in May and then start marking up bills in June. And that would go into July. The problem there is that the Senate is going to have a really long recess in July, like two weeks. That includes the period when the Democrats' convention is going on. So the amount of work that they can do in July is more limited than usual. Yeah, as, you, as you're hinting, there's an election, obviously, this year. Um, what sort of wrenches might that throw into the schedule for appropriations? Well, right there in July, that leaves less time for markups. It also leaves less time, much less time, for floor consideration of bills. And in the Senate, Chairman Shelby said even before they finished the 2020 bills last December that he really didn't expect that they would be finishing these fiscal 21 bills until the post-election lame duck session of Congress. Wow. So we could be uh, behind a bit this year, it sounds like. A little bit, but the thing that's helping them is that unlike last year at this time, they have a budget framework that was approved by both the House and Senate and the President signed into law. They have those total discretionary spending targets for both defense and non-defense already worked out, so they can use those to develop their bills, at least they're in agreement on that. And without having to go through that negotiation again, 
they have a bipartisan plan, they can start writing some of the bills. But they still have to decide within those totals how they distribute the money. Do you think some lawmakers are expecting the year still to start with a continuing resolution? Obviously, we've seen that in the past, and, and with an election year, I wonder what, you, what you're expecting there. Oh, definitely. When Senator Shelby talks about these not being done until a post-election lame duck session, that means in September they would have to have a continuing resolution or stopgap to cover them when they went out on the election trail. And the other thing, of course, that they might have to do way before that is an emergency supplemental for the coronavirus, and they're working on that now. Do you expect that to cause any sort of delays to the normal appropriations process, or do you think that's sort of working side by side? Well, what's interesting is that this year is starting out like last year did. Last year at this time they were working on an emergency supplemental, which they got done before they did anything else. So it's kind of built into the appropriator's playbook that they have to deal with these types of things. And right now they're talking about doing a coronavirus supplemental that could be passed as soon as next week. So once that was out of there, then for the time being, they could focus on the regular bills. What about on the authorization side? What are you tracking there? Well, this week, Senator McConnell, Senate leader, is bringing a package of energy bills to the floor. And this is kind of one of the first um, committee bills that we've seen in a long time. So that's going to give people on both sides a lot to talk about on the floor, different provisions that they've sponsored for energy efficiency, energy storage, and so on. And then later in the spring, McConnell would really like to bring up a transportation infrastructure bill. That's something that the Senate Environment and Public Works reported last summer. The problem there is that they haven't figured out the financing title yet, and they're working on that. They're looking for maybe a new tax uh, provision or mechanism to raise more revenue for highway and mass transit programs. But we might see that on the floor this spring. And then later on, maybe a bill to deal with high um, prescription drug prices. With just about a minute to go, I also want to make sure we get to the defense authorization yes. bill. Are you tracking that one as well? Yeah. Um, on that bill, which is a perennial and a high priority for the leaders in both chambers, um, it seems as though the House will go first, and that's a bill that you might see on the House floor before the Memorial Day recess or the first part of June. And Senator Inhofe, the Armed Services Committee chairman, said he'll be marking up his bill, his defense bill, uh, the week of May 18th in order to have it ready for the Senate floor in June. And he's hopeful that maybe it'll go to conference with the House in June, and there could be a final conference report in July. But I think that's still a heavy lift, that that would be something you would see after the August recess. Thank you so much, Nancy. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Up next, the cyber threat landscape and preparing for a worst-case scenario. Straight ahead on Government Matters, an extreme step the U.S. could take to block cyber attacks. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The Defense Information Systems Agency just suffered a cyber attack, and the personal information of over 200,000 employees was exposed. Some are weighing whether the U.S. needs access to a more extreme option as it fends off cyber attacks. Tony Cole is Chief Technology Officer at Ativo Networks. He recently participated in a panel on whether it's time for a big red button for cyber. Thanks for being here, Tony. 
Thank you, Marjorie. Let's start by talking about what exactly a big red button is. What would this mean? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic, and uh, we did it primarily at RSA so we could speculate and get audience participation uh, on whether or not we should disconnect from the Internet. I mean, big cyber attack has started, it's coming, and you hit the, the, the big red button. There's a very interesting conversation with uh, Zscaler, an infrastructure security company, Michael Daniel, who is the uh, cyber czar under President Obama, and uh, uh, Anne-Marie Zettelmoyer, an executive at MasterCard. So a pretty good, myself, and a pretty good mix, you know, to, to talk about this topic. How extreme is this option? I mean, what kind of scenario could you realistically use this in, and, and how many, how much time, how much planning would it require to have this in place for that scenario? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's more of a, a thought process for us because I don't think it's really grounded in reality today. You know, uh, the, the Chinese have the ability to filter their internet traffic, so the Russians have this ability that they're building out as we speak. However, our systems are so integrated today, uh, so many uh, tentacles tied into the cloud, so many uh, applications tied into the cloud, that it would be really difficult to, to put something in place like this. And even if we wanted to, I think it would take a number of years to, to get to that capability where we could disconnect and not have a massive, massive uh, uh, set of issues. So uh, by pushing that button. So and even then, I think you would have to have it really limited to either maybe the government or the utility sector to protect our power grid. But you really couldn't do it in the commercial world, in, in my opinion, with the global interconnected uh, uh, systems we have today. You know, if we were in this scenario and, and the, the, they were able to have this in place and kind of do this disconnection, what do you think the potential downsides or consequences would be? Uh, I think uh, we would lose a lot of functionality we have today, and I, I think that's problematic. I think that, uh, you know, depending if, if we try to do this for the entire United States, I think that, uh, you know, the government would likely uh, get sued <laughs> for decades and decades, sure. you know, just think about the, the loss of, uh, of, of finances, you know, in financial transactions, you know, for, um, for you know, the, uh, the, the large financial companies, banks and such, uh, the, the Federal Reserve, you know, that processes transactions, you know, across the financial market infrastructure globally. I think there's a significant amount of challenges we would have in that. So, and, uh, so that's why it's, it's probably not feasible, you know, as a as a, an encompassing button for everything in the U.S., so it just wouldn't happen. What uh, drives this conversation? Do you think that it's a sense that the U.S. maybe just doesn't have a strong enough set of tools to really curb these attacks? Yeah, I, I think that primarily is it. You know, if we look, um, information is beautiful. You know, is is one of my favorite websites. It's got uh, a, a you know one selection you can hit, which is data breaches by uh, by number of records stolen, which is fascinating. You can see it populate from 2005 up wow. to, to 2019. And a couple here, and then the screen is jam-packed at, at the very top. And it just kind of shows, you know, the, uh, uh, I think Gartner's estimating this year about $130 billion spent on cybersecurity tools and uh, uh, mostly on the preventative side and with little success at stopping these major breaches. As you kicked off, you know, just another major breach at DISA. So, and it's, it's problematic. So we need to do something different is, is my point, even though a big red button, you know, is, is not gonna be it. Is the reason that these attacks are growing, is it, is it partly because of lack of tools? It sounds like you also maybe think the attackers' methods, technology, sort of capabilities have changed over the years too. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely they have. You know, when these first started out, you know, it was primarily focused on, on notoriety. People were hacking to, to 
you know, get recognition. Uh, and then over the years, you know, organized crime was watching and found they could monetize, you know, uh, attacks and, and do many things with a lot less risk doing it online. And of course, nation states took espionage and just moved it to the cyber realm. So it's really fascinating that uh, people today talk about, oh, well, I'm not a target. I've not seen a sophisticated attack take place against me. And the adversaries typically are only using an attack that's as sophisticated as it needs to be to succeed. You know, you don't need to pull out the big tools, the big guns, if you don't need them, right? If you're still going to be successful. So, uh, so that's the challenge we have today. There are many sophisticated weapons, more than likely, that we've never seen because today we've not raised the level of the obstacles and put in place the uh, uh, the hardening needed, you know, to stop these from being successful, even at the lower levels of sophistication. So. Wow. When you talk about those more sophisticated tools that haven't been used, do you think those mostly reside with nation states or? all potential kind of groups of, yeah. of cyber attackers? That's a great question and it, mostly today those are nation-state capabilities but when you when you look at nation-states you often have to also consider rogue nations so in nations that are on the out you know with uh, you know with uh, the G20 and, and you know many other nations around the globe so what are they willing to do so uh, but they have more of the sophisticated capabilities the challenges we have is we also see some nation-state actors there uh, their personnel moonlight so so a lot of those capabilities are either lost by a nation state or you have nation state actors that are moonlighting in the underground helping organize crime so so there's a lot of bleed over there today and you start to see more and more equivalency on the uh, capabilities between organized crime and nation states thanks so much for being here tony i appreciate it thank you very much I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights today at 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.